You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. You with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and my guest is James Fishback from Incubate Debate in the United States. James, good morning, and welcome to Reality Check Radio. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me. I am really excited. I got sent an article that you wrote a few weeks ago in the Free Press, and it put my spidey senses up. And the friend that sent it to me said, oh, you're going to love this. And it is titled The High School Debates. Debate is no longer allowed. So give us an, an idea of what is in the article and what prompted you to write it. Absolutely. What's the article details is how high school debate went from an activity that elevated objectivity and merit and free speech into an echo chamber where certain viewpoints are censored and free speech is under attack. And the article is really centered around the National Speech and Debate Association, which is the oldest debate league in the country in the United States, as well as the most influential. And the way the, the the article is really developed is around something called a judge paradigm. So these are essentially online blog posts that judges, the high school debate judges, submit to the tournaments. And they were originally designed so students could read their judges' criteria expectations before the debate and adapt accordingly. So the way it might work is if a judge had a preference for students to not speak a mile a minute and to slow down by reading a judge's paradigm, the, the the student would know, hey, I've got to slow down a little bit. The judge isn't on the spreading or the 300 mile, or the 300 word per minute bandwagon. If the judge said, hey, I, I prefer you, you structure your evidence this way, or I'd prefer you spend a lot more times on your impact, which is the why your argument matters then the student would adapt accordingly. Now, that's all fine and good. These judge paradigms, when they are used to relay information around style and and speed, that's perfectly fine. But what's happened over the last couple of years is these paradigms have been hijacked. They're now riddled with political and ideological statements that, in effect, tell students what they can and can't say and how they can and can't say it. So the article starts off with this example from the 2019 National College debate champion here in the United States. She is a regular on the high school debate scene. And she tells students before they even begin debating in front of her, she tells them, quote, before anything else, including being a debate judge, I am a Marxist, Leninist, Maoist. I will no longer evaluate and thus ever vote for arguments which include capitalism good, imperialist war good, neoliberalism good, defense of the U.S. or nationalism good, normalizing Israel colonialism, U.S. white fascist policing good. So how does that young American sophomore feel when she walks into a debate round and she has an argument about how capitalism is the best way to protect the individual liberties of the people or how it breeds innovation and growth? And so it, it really tilts the scale 
against this free and open dialogue that high school debate was all about. It changed my life. I did debate for four years in high school. I was a debate coach for two years afterward. This activity has tremendous potential, but it's under attack by individuals who are now using it as more of a Trojan horse. On the outside, it appears to be this vehicle for free speech, open expression, diversity of thought, but it's yet another tool that's used by the diversity, equity, and inclusion crowd to censor, to attack free speech, and to push an agenda where only one side is truly righteous. Surely within the paradigms for these judges, this must go against the charter of the national body. It does. It absolutely does. In fact, the the charter says, and I quote, judges should decide the round as it's debated, not based on their personal beliefs. But as you know, it's not necessarily what the rules say. It's are the rules enforced? And there's no question that this judge and the many others like her that I've outlined in my piece and the hundreds of other paradigms that didn't get to make it in the piece, but are egregious, they blatantly violate the rules of high school debate. But it's one thing to violate the rules. It's another thing to be enforced, to have those rules enforced against you. And it seems that the National Speech Debate Association has no interest in enforcing these rules in large part because it's a feature, not a bug of how they operate. They are perfectly fine with censoring conservative or even right of center, even centrist arguments, as long as it saves their students the awkward conversations about what happened during the pandemic with the lockdowns, what happened with the vaccine mandates, what happened around childhood education as a result of the lies that we were told, what's happening at the southern border, what's happening, the truth about the Second Amendment or President Trump's foreign policy. So in, uh, in, an, in an attempt to save kids from the emotional volatility of having to come to terms with the the actual facts of those issues, they instead allow this tacit censorship that keeps everything hunky-dory and stable. Mm. When did the rot start setting in? You know, I I barely noticed, and I'd, I'd really have to reach to go back to my time as a high school debater, which was 2009 to 2013. I'll tell you, I had a blast. I had an awful childhood stutter as a kid. And debate gave me that opportunity to fix it. Uh, you know, when you're giving speeches every weekend, when you're practicing to give those speeches every single day, it really does help with that. I remember as a high school freshman reading Milton Friedman, reading The Economist magazine, reading what was happening in countries that six months prior, I had no idea where to find on a map. So it was an, truly an eye-opening experience. But when I left in 2013, and then I returned in 2017, the debate scene that I came back to I hardly recognized this thing that transformed my life had transformed into something that was a shell of its former self. If I had to guess, I would say it had something to do with a certain man coming down a certain escalator in the summer of 2015. And um, whether whether you, you support his policies or not, there's no doubting that when Donald Trump entered the race and then became president of the United States, it created this tribalism. And the tribalism said, are you with us? Or are you against us? Because our side is the only side that's truly right and just. And I think in their mind, those who are censoring in the high school debate scene, they view this as righteous because they view the other side as rooted in fear, paranoia, racism, xenophobia, nationalism. And I'll tell you, they wouldn't have that view 
if both sides had an equal opportunity to debate, they would see that the conservative viewpoint is really about putting the citizens of a country first. It's about individual liberty. It's about self-defense. It is about economic liberty. And it's a shame that they can't see that and they're talked into this tribalistic political nature. And that's in large part because they've censored the other side who doesn't have a chance to convince them otherwise. I mentioned to you before we got started, I was an exchange student in the US in the late 80s. And so I was very aware of this debate scene. So it's something that here in New Zealand isn't very prevalent. But what I remember going to the debates, I used to go and watch the debates that our school competed in. What I loved seeing was how you would have students that were at one school who because of the environment that the school was in, would have leanings uh, and opinions in one form, were pitched against quite a different school, and the moot was opposite. They had to argue opposite of what you would normally expect. And watching what would unfold, and you could see that students would then often have to argue something that normally they would personally be against but they've had to research and watch that unflowering so the school I was at was based off an air force base so it was a very pro-military 80 percent of the students there were the uh, students of military personnel bearing in mind late 80s so then when they were given a moot that was do you believe that American intervention is required in and I think it was uh, Panama was the was the topic. And watching right. these kids who were all really pro that, having to then think, well, okay, let's think about the other side of the story Absolutely. and vice versa. Yeah, and that is the value, isn't it? It's creating kids to become critical thinkers. It absolutely is. And critical thinking is at its heart being able to put yourself in other people's shoes and see different perspectives. If you just see a certain party as representing evil, then you don't have the perspective to see, well, what is actually driving this, that, and the other? I'm reminded of a debate that uh, when I was a debate coach, my students participated in about police funding. And I I coached an all-black team when I came back to be a debate coach in 2017. And the idea at the time was that black people were all against the police. And the, you know, white students and Asian students had this idea that if you're black, that you are anti-police. And it wasn't until they competed alongside black students who were actually pro-police that they actually got to see, wait, there's something out there. The media is telling us one thing. Popular culture is telling us one thing. But sitting across the table and talking to people who look different from you, have come from a different background, and can kind of turn the narrative, that's profound. That is profound. That's how you bring a people and a country together. Uh, I'm reminded uh, we have a presidential candidate here in the United States on the Republican side, Vivek Ramaswamy, who talks a lot about free speech and open debate. And he says this often. He says, the path to conviction, the path to unity is through free speech and open debate. Imagine the conversations around the pandemic, around the lockdowns, around education, not just in the United States, but in New Zealand, the censorship that took place around those conversations. You weren't allowed to question certain things. Had the people, the free people of New Zealand and the United States been able to question and to really earnestly push back against this narrative, the pandemic, the response 
would have looked very, very different. We would not have been stripped of our liberties. We would not have been locked down in the ways that we were had we been able to have an equal dialogue with the other side and not be deemed fake news or disinformation, misinformation. And so that the heart of open debate is much bigger than high school debate. This piece and what's happened in high school debate is really a reflection of what's happening in advanced countries around the world. The ruling elite finds certain ideas unacceptable, labels them dis and misinformation, and then keeps them out of the public square in, in order to, in their words, protect the people, protect safety. And uh, the best way to beat speech that you disagree with is to have better speech and to convince otherwise. And the other thing too is I think more speech. Yeah, more speech. More speech. You get to a point, and we've certainly seen it in this country, you get to a point where you are shouted down and demonized so much for having a contrary opinion for what is set out by the ruling classes that you just get to a point where it just gets too hard and you just want to keep your head down and don't want to say anything. You're coming into primary season. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there are announcements left, right and centre now for political candidates and the brouhaha is already beginning to start. Are those conversations also starting or is it as divisive as ever? I think it's I think it's as divisive as ever. I, one statistic that really exemplifies this, especially for young Americans, where the division is the most stark, is if you ask young Democrats, would you date a Republican? One third of Democrats say, no, no, I would never date a Republican. And if you flip it, if you ask young Republicans whether they would date a Democrat, it's only 5% who would say no. Look, there's division on both sides, but it seems like the, the, the unwillingness to even have that conversation is really coming from the left. I think they've been told a lot of lies and I, I don't blame them, right? I look at everything that's been said over the last couple of years, right? We were told for years that President Trump was an agent of the Kremlin, was compromised by Russia. And so when anybody on the right would support him, they were mocked by the left as being someone carrying water for Putin, someone who was a Russian double agent as well. So that statistic really, really tells a story that the division is not just about not willing to have a conversation about politics. It is not willing to engage them even over a drink, even over something more than that. So I look at that and say, you know, when I was growing up, when you spent your time here in the US in the late 80s, we didn't care who was a Republican or a Democrat. We didn't care. Okay, you voted for Clinton, you voted for Bush, you voted for Reagan, you know, you voted for Carter. But we were all American. We were all American. We all believed in the ideas that set this nation into motion nearly 250 years ago. Merit, free speech, diversity of thought. And to see young people scorn at the other side and to label them in such a way you can never get unity unless you have honest conversation. And for a lot of people, by the way, that honest conversation would happen at these debate tournaments. Those kids, even if they weren't in debate, they would take that message, that empathy, that ability to listen twice as much as we speak, right? We have two ears, one mouth. That ability, that willingness to listen and speak with the other side, they would take that back to school and they would instill those values in others. And unfortunately, we're not seeing that right now. I'm talking to James Fishbeck, the founder of Incubate Debate. I'm glad you brought up patriotism. Because that was the one thing that struck me as a student, is the level of patriotism. That was the one thread that pulled 
people from both sides of the political aisle together. You all bleed red. It was you America first. And it was as a Kiwi, we don't have that level of patriotism quite the same, not as to the forefront as you had in the US. And it's actually, it is quite infectious. I found it really, really infectious. One of the things as an observer now looking back to the US, particularly in the last five years, is a determination to erode that patriotism Mm -hmm. and dismantle it. Are you sensing that, seeing it? I'm seeing it 100%. I'm seeing it 100%. You need to look no further than the New York Times editorial board member, Mara Gay, when she said a couple of years ago, I was out on Long Island, I saw so many American flags, and it was repulsive. It was, right? The the idea that all of these American flags, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if you hang an American flag, if you hung an American flag on your deck, you couldn't guess someone's political affiliation. You couldn't guess who they voted for in the last election. Now, the American flag has become this symbol of of the right, not because the right has made it a symbol. They've always believed that it's been a symbol like any American, but it's because the other side has now viewed the American flag as somehow symbolizing xenophobia and nationalism what they pejoratively call America first, what we proudly call America first. So patriotism has now been weaponized against people. The idea that it's somehow uh, you're proud to not stand for the flag, that you don't have the American flag. If someone gets mocked for having the flag on their car or on their lapel pin as somehow being jingoistic or being uh, some sort of nationalist and that's awful. We need to come together as a country. You saw it again in the 80s. I saw it growing up in the 90s and the early 2000s. A country where patriotism is not partisan. It is something that we all share. It transcends political party. It transcends race. That's something we have to really, really get back to, right? We have to feel like we're one country again. It's interesting you brought up Vivek Ramaswamy because he's someone I really wanted to would want to talk to. I've read his book, Quote Capital, and yeah. he talks really well around the creation of social justice ideologies within capitalism and how dangerous and pernicious they can be. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the big thing are these ESG scores, which are starting to crop up everywhere. I've been following and tracking two things that have been going on, but particularly the boycotts that are starting. People are quietly, they're getting to the point where I think no one's listening to them necessarily in the media or in other formats, so they're voting with their wallets, and that seems Mm -hmm. to be quite effective. So Anheuser-Busch obviously has been hit with this. Uh, Now I think Target has become a target. Coles, there's been a few others that people are now saying, putting their hands up and saying no. Do you think that that is actually capitalism, dare I say it, could be the saviour of the day? I think capitalism is always the saviour of the day. For all the ails, the ailments that afflict us, for all the issues that we face, whether they're the the people in in sub-Saharan Africa, whether they are economies that are trying to move up from third world to second world or even to the advanced economies, capitalism is the solution to everything, right? When Adam Smith penned the wealth of nations in 1776 of course the same birth year as our country i don't think that was a coincidence we can kind of look back at that and say that's interesting but three people using their power using their hard-earned resources to make decisions about what values they want the companies that they support to focus on is the name of the game right if where was anheuser-busch where was bud light when we could have put Susan B. Anthony or Rosa Parks, 
or Condoleezza Rice, right? Where were those advertisement campaigns? And then all of a sudden, we get Dylan Mulvaney on a can. Where was the target display for Veterans Day last year or Memorial Day to honor the great men and women who paid the ultimate sacrifice to keep us to keep us all safe and to protect the values that all of us hold dear. So there's so much hypocrisy here that it, it, so many Americans, I think, are frustrated who are participating in these boycotts. They realize they actually have some power for once. And they say, look, we are not going to support businesses that don't respect our values, be it Target, be it Anheuser-Busch, be it whatever. If you put certain philosophies and ideologies on a pedestal, while ignoring the values that we 20 years ago all held sacred, patriotism, reverence for our men and women in uniform, the great female icons that made this country what it is today, then we have no reason to buy your product. And people will vote with their feet. And hopefully the businesses will look at that and kind of summed up, right? Go woke, go broke. They'll realize that the people can't take it anymore, that they don't want their products, that they don't want their money going into something that does not represent their and their family values. Yeah, we're certainly starting to see it here too. And I think this is the beginning of a big change. The saying done in this part of the world is if America um, sneezes, we catch a cold. One of the things that you mentioned before is in terms of the state of debate nationally. What I loved Mm -hmm. about looking into you was the fact that A, you're frustrated about it, B, you've spoken out about it, but C, you've done something about it. So Mm -hmm. talk me through Incubate Debate. Absolutely. So I left the traditional high school debate scene in 2019. I'll never forget one of my students, a black young man, really bright, really eloquent, being told by his judge, you know, you would have won the debate had you not condemned the Black Lives Matter organization. This was a white judge telling that to a black student. So that was kind of near where the straw broke the camel's back. And I said, look, this organization can't be reformed. Let's go back to the beauty of capitalism. Let's go back to creating parallel institutions where competition and in turn creative destruction reign true. And so I started this organization, a nonprofit here in the United States called Incubate Debate which is as much a verb as it is a noun. We're trying to incubate debate in in these middle and high school communities. So we are the fastest growing debate league in the country. We exclusively serve the state of Florida, which is the third largest state in the US. And how do we do things differently? Well, first, all of our tournaments are free, which no one else can say. Everything that we do is no cost. Second, we are serious about free speech, open debate, and merit, which means that at our tournaments, these radical judges who push their ideology, and by the way, this is not a left or a right issue. Any adult pushing their ideology on a child, that is wrong. It would be just as wrong as if conservatives were doing it, as if progressives were doing it. When a student comes into a round, they ought to win or lose that round on the merit their evidence, their logic, their persuasion, their ability to answer questions from their opponent. Point blank, period. That's it. And then finally, and I'm most proud of this, is that we have citizen judges, which is to say the other debate leagues like the NSDA, they bring former high school debaters who are now college students who are now studying gender studies and feminism and all of that at the Ivy League who are really detached from reality and in turn feed this echo chamber. 
What we do is we bring in members from the community, citizens who actually represent the best of what makes this country so special. So law enforcement, first responders, firefighters, members of the armed forces, local elected officials, state elected officials, members of the judiciary. And oftentimes we have special guests, people like Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch or Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg or Governor Chris Christie and so on to really open our students up to give them all of the different viewpoints and allow that marketplace of ideas to do what it always does best, elevate the ideas that will succeed on the merit and on their logic. And what's happened as a result is students who have come in with a certain viewpoint, either two options. One, their mind is opened to different ideas and they begin to change. Or the second, and this is even just as important, is they they stick with the same idea, but they end up with a much firmer conviction. I've always been pro-life. I've always been pro-life growing up in a Catholic household. But having to defend pro-life when I was a high school debater gave me even a stronger conviction in what it meant to be a pro-life American. So either you walk away with a different view, one that is rooted in evidence and logic and merit, or you walk away with the same view that you walked in with, but it now has even more evidence, logic, and merit to back it up. Beautiful conversations are happening. Kids from all backgrounds are coming together. Parents, grandparents, nieces, nephews all come to spectate our debate. These truly are laboratories of engaged citizenship and democracy. Saturdays where kids come out and debate the Constitution, where they do historical look-back debates and see was the Vietnam War justified? Was the pandemic lockdowns, were those justified? Where we debate issues like nuclear energy, uh, U.S. nuclear policy when it comes to weapons, the border, Second Amendment, so on and so forth. So it really is a beautiful thing. And I'll tell you, we always start our incubate debate events patriotically. We start with that Pledge of Allegiance. We start by reading the opening words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence as a subtle reminder that we are all here pledging allegiance to one country, working to solve and to better understand the issues that often ail us. I mean, that's one of the questions I was going to bring up was around the topics that you have. I mean, you've got topic, you're hitting topics that even legacy media won't touch. Right. So right. that's saying something. I mean, I'm just looking at here in regards to uh, should the US spend more on police? Well, they, you know, and as we well know, they've spent since 2020. Right. Defunding the police was the catch cry amongst many. Uh, should the US send troops to Haiti? Well, there you go. That's an argument that's been going going on since my day uh, when I was there. The body positivity movement, helpful or harmful? Right. And those now, are the questions, by the way, to the NSDA and to the mainstream media, those questions are off limits. And the reason why is because they're they're viewed as settled. They're viewed as settled issues. Of course, the body positivity movement is is helpful. How dare you question that, lest you be flat fat phobic, right? Of course, the pandemic lockdowns were brilliant. Of course, there were no issues with the 2020 election, right? So those are sort of settled questions. And what we do is we say, nothing is settled in the marketplace of ideas. The best ideas are always elevated because they have the best evidence and merit. I want to pivot slightly. AI. Everyone's talking about AI. Do you think AI is going to have an effect in the debate space? I think in in, in one ways it can, in one way it, it it can, but it wouldn't be as beneficial. We actually had a debate recently about whether AI was going to benefit students via the K through twelve teacher angle, and it was a great debate, by the way. But 
I think to the extent that artificial intelligence, best known today is kind of the chat GPT, that can help students research better. It can help them test ideas out, help the AI kind of refute the ideas and say, give me a reason why this might not work or give me a way to embolden this. Students still need to do their own research and, and whatnot. But again, it can be a helpful tool, much like for a mathematician, a calculator can be helpful uh, or for a landscaper, uh, an automatic lawnmower machine powered could be helpful. I think where AI becomes problematic in the debate space is if it's used to replace the human interaction. So instead of going to practice with your coach or or with your team members, you instead resort to this back and forth with this chat, this AI artificial chat. And that strips the debate, that strips the humanity from debate, the human connection. One thing that's great about debate is that every weekend or so you're meeting with people you're hanging out you're having pizza you know you have a really tough competitive round and then afterward you're having snacks and, and sharing a soda that's that's the beauty of debate it's to bring americans from all backgrounds together to debate issues that matter to debate topics that matter so i i would say ai as a research tool can be very helpful but it should never replace the human interaction of testing ideas with 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 your with your fellow peers and we all know that the lockdowns was one of the things that by pulling people apart, it allowed so many of these regulations and restrictions to be applied because people couldn't, it's not the same. I mean, you and I are doing this over Zoom and we do it in video so you and I can see each other. This is going out in audio, but it's not the same as the connection of actually sitting with somebody and having an organic discussion, which is there's so. There's nothing like it. You know, if you you and I have a disagreement or we agree and we walk away and give each other a hug, we shake hands, there's something there's powerful in that, that no amount of Zoom or no amount of 5G can ever replace. Absolutely. So funding, how, I mean, you, you're doing this for free. So there has to be, how are you being funded with this? Well, so we we accept, you know, I've been fortunate enough because of my full-time work in the investing world to to fund a lot of it, but we've also been funded by, you know, small donors here in the state of Florida, um, families who have deep ties to the state, who, who look at what's happening in the country and say, we've got to do something about it. And what better investment to make than in the future, in the future young people having important dialogue, important conversations about the issues that are top of mind for so many Americans. And I'll say this, all of our judges come to us as a volunteer. We almost never pay for event space, almost never pay for food. All that food is donated. Um, so we we actually run a very lean and mean operation here at Incubate Debate. And what does that mean? It means that the donations that come in go directly to impacting the students. They go directly into facilitating this dialogue to ensure that both sides can be heard. So any plans to grow from Florida? You know, I, if you would have asked me a couple of weeks ago before the article came out, I would have said that was maybe a two to three year plan. But the article has been read over a million times. Hundreds of people have reached out, whether they're school board members, teachers, state representatives, business partners, and they all have one question. How can we bring incubate debate to our community? And so it's something we're working on right now. We have this model. And the model, by the way, is no cost, our unique formats, which are what we call easy to learn, hard to master. When you think of high school debate, you often think of this two-on-two -two debate where you go back and forth. It often devolves into a shouting match. Students can speak a mile a minute. But that's not the debate that happens across the dinner table. That's not the debate that happens on the patio. That's not the debate where really most Americans bridge the divide and understand each other's differences. Most of those debates, again, happen in the most unusual places, 
where you wouldn't expect debate to happen at the dinner table at the water cooler, so on and so forth. So we have one format, which is unique to us. We started it. It's called Roundtable. And Roundtable is where you put eight students together for 20 minutes. And there are only three rules. The first, you can't use notes. The second, you can't stand up. And the last one is the only other rule is the rule of common decency and civility. So it's sort of like the view except there are multiple views allowed. People get to have this open, free-form conversation. You can interject. You can ask questions. You can offer opinions. If someone says something you disagree with, you don't have to wait your turn. You can immediately refute. Now, that teaches two skills. One is the ability to think on your feet, but two is the ability to listen. Again, we have two ears, one mouth. Listen twice as much as we speak. My grandmother of 96 taught me that and still teaches me that, reminds me of that that the best listeners, the best debaters are often the best listeners because we they take it in and then they prioritize what they really truly want to say. We want to take that model, that unique, those unique formats, this no cost model, and then the idea of citizen judges, all of which are unique to incubate debate. We want to take that and bring it to individual communities across the country. So we are racing to do something this summer to identify two to three local partners on the ground in different parts of the U.S. and say, we want to work with you because you and us, we both recognize the power of open debate and free speech. Oh, that sounds so inspiring. I, I can't wait to also see the incubate corporate model where you go in uh, and have debates within the corporate environment, hopefully break down some of that DEI stuff that goes on. I think that would be amazing as well. There you go. You can do that next year. <laughs> that'd be a great no, that'd be a great idea, right? Think about it. There's no better way. Yeah. You say that this is great. I say that this is bad. Let's have a debate around it. And on Bridgewater, which is the largest hedge fund in the world, they've apparently built their success on this model of debate where every idea, no idea is taken for granted, no issue is settled, everything at any time can be up for debate. And that is the kind of rigorous standard we ought to hold ourselves to in the country, in government, in education, and especially in the corporate world. Yeah, definitely. Oh, well, look, James, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Really appreciate it. Where can people find more information about what you're doing? Well, they can look at incubatedebate.org, just how it sounds, incubatedebate.org. Take a look at it. Look at our topics. Look at the videos of Roundtable of young students, 14, 15-year-old, having discussions about the Second Amendment or about U.S. foreign policy. And if they like what they see, we would always appreciate their support as we continue to fight to bring free speech, merit, and diversity of viewpoints back to high school debate in America. Thank you so much. Stay tuned, everybody. More interesting conversation and information here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. You're with Counterculture. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio.